As I hope you read in our last couple of emails, we're starting today a sermon series on the book of Deuteronomy that will go until up until Palm Sunday. We won't talk about Deuteronomy on Palm Sunday. It'll be over the week before that. One of the things that um, has struck me, that's helped me as I've uh, been thinking about Deuteronomy, is this quote that we'll now put up on the screen by Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is one of the best, most well-known Old Testament scholars living. He's, he's at the top of his game. He's at the top of... When you talk about Old Testament scholarship, Walter Brueggemann is in the top and his comment on Deuteronomy from the introduction is this Deuteronomy looks both backward to rootage and forward to crisis and interprets at the precise place where rootage and crisis intersect and I thought that was very helpful for placing Deuteronomy especially for us today because as we all know, we are certainly in our time living in a time of crisis, even if that crisis was only limited to COVID. We are just at a time where things are different for most of us than they have ever been. And we don't know exactly what the future uh, is, going, is going to hold. And so we look back on our tradition. We look back at the gospel. We look back at what God has been doing through the centuries. And as we do that, that helps us move forward into our time of crisis. And that's what, that's what um, Brueggemann calls this place where rootage, so we look back, and where crisis intersect. And I thought that was a very helpful framework for thinking about the, the book of Deuteronomy. Because as, as you may know, the book of Deuteronomy takes place when the, 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 the nation of Israel, the, the 12 tribes, have been wandering through the desert for 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. They've been wandering through the desert for 40 years, and now they're at the eastern side of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross the Jordan River and move into Canaan. And they're standing with the desert behind them, looking across uh, the river into this rich land of Canaan. So that's this moment of, of, of crisis where we've, we've had all this behind us and now we have to move ahead into this land and we're not sure exactly what that's going, going to be like. And I wanted to read the first four verses of the book of Deuteronomy, which should appear on your screen. These are all the words that Moses spoke to all Israel behind the, beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb, and Horeb is Mount Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, so remember the wilderness, uh, the wilderness wanderings have been forty years long, in the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, 
Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrai. So the people are on the edge of the Jordan after they've gone through some battles and some rough times, and they're looking ahead toward moving into the land of Canaan. The Torah, or Deuteronomy, is written for people who are either outside of the land or are still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the whole world. So this book of Deuteronomy takes place in its immediate local context as Israel is on the other side of the Jordan. But of course, it, 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 it's referring to all the times in history when either Israel or other people, including us, are on these moments of, of crisis, this moment of transition. And one of the reasons we know that is because it is most likely so that the book of Deuteronomy was finally put together about six centuries before Christ. So the Exodus happened, I don't even remember, I think 12 or 1600 years before Christ, I think 1200 years before Christ. But the book of Deuteronomy was only finally put together around the sixth century before Christ. And one of the ways people know that is because the kind of language that's used. And I can illustrate that in this way. If some archaeologist or historian were 500 years from now to be sifting through newspapers of our lifetimes, they might run across the term floppy disk. How many of you know what a floppy disk is? How many of you use a floppy disk? No, well, well, I won't. <laughs> won't go there. Um, as you know, a floppy disk was the very first little computer disk on which we stored information, and it only existed for like about five years, right? And now it's gone. So, if you read an article which talks about a floppy disk, you know that it's only within a certain period of time. It could not have been written in 1985. Well, no, in 1975. And it likely would not have been written in 2005 because floppy disks were gone by then. So that's how you can place... Um, writing in terms of its time. Another one that I thought of was, uh, was a very contemporary one, which is the word boosted or boosted. I'm not even sure which is right, which we use. I use I tend to say boosted. I don't even think boosted is a word. But we are all now asking each other, are you boosted or all you boosted? Two years ago, you would have never asked anybody that. So it has a very specific location in its context. And for that reason, the book of Deuteronomy, when the experts, of which I'm not, of course, really look at the writing, they can see the kinds of terms and language that's used that reflects the time in which it was written. But it is 
generally understood and thought to be that the book of Deuteronomy developed over all of the centuries from the time of Moses and was put together by groups of Levitical priests who both in their oral tradition as well as their writings were of course very interested in preserving the, 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 the teaching of Moses and, and his influence in Israel and also the prophetic movement, the prophets were likely also involved, as well as the, as the scribes. And if you're really a Bible nerd, you will remember the name Baruch, who was the scribe of Jeremiah, who wrote everything down. He could have well been involved in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as Ezra, one of the people who came back from uh, Babylon back into Jerusalem and was also a scribe. And it's thought that Ezra... Uh, also contributed to the books of First and Second Chronicles. So what we see as we look at Deuteronomy is this book that's developing over the centuries, intimately woven into the history of Israel, but every time again being understood and interpreted in new ways for its time. And... Um, Christopher Wright, who uh, is also one of the persons I'm reading, has this to say about that. The quote should come up. Oh no, I'm sorry, this is also Walter Brueggemann. As important as are the materials that constitute the substance of Deuteronomy, it is equal important, equally important to take into serious account the process of interpretation whereby Moses, in each new generation, restates Torah in new ways. That vitality means that there is no final settled interpretation, but always another reading of the tradition that must be done afresh in the hands of imaginative, faithful interpreters. In the hands of imaginative, faithful interpreters, the text always means again and means differently. So the challenge that we have today in 2022 is to read Deuteronomy, say what did it mean for Moses and Israel? What did it mean for the people of the exile? What did it mean in the time of Jesus? Because Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book. And what does it mean for us? And now a couple things about our perspective as we approach Deuteronomy. You have heard me speak over the years that I've been here uh, on occasion about the way that we understand the church and the mission of the church. Is the church a lifeboat or is it a colony? There should be a slide in there. Um, there we go. Is the church a lifeboat, or is the church a colony? Is the church the place where the whole world is going down like the Titanic, and if you want to be saved, you have to make sure that you get into the boat, and then you have to decide and determine and listen to the Word and talk with each other about what things you need to do or believe to be in the boat. And I think that's the way most of us have grown up. And you've heard me say numerous times 
that I think that that's, it's not a totally wrong perspective, but it's, it's skewed. And it's not complete. Because the church is really more like a colony. Where the king sends out his people into this new land and says, I want you to go out there and build the colony, start building the kingdom that matches with who I am and what I want for the creation and the world that I have made. So the lifeboat perception is more of a coming out of the world into the lifeboat and escaping from the destruction. And the colony uh, perspective is more from down being called and then moving out horizontally. You see the difference. And the reason why I so strongly believe that Deuteronomy is, is a book about colony is because when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he was very clear. There is no doubt about what God said to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to call you. I want you to leave your land. And that sounds like lifeboat. I want you to leave your, the pagan gods. I want you to come and serve me. That sounds very much like lifeboat. But the last part of God's promise to Abraham is, through you, I am going to bless all the nations and families of the world. I'm not calling you to separate yourselves out of, to jump off the sinking boat into some other place. I'm calling you to go out into the world to be the place and be the people and conduct yourselves in this world in such a way that people will know this is the way I want you all to live together. This is what Eden looked like. There's a huge difference in those two perspectives. So if you read Deuteronomy from the perspective of God is calling me to do this so that I can get into the lifeboat and save my soul, you will read it as a demand. You will read it as a teacher who gives a spelling test and says you, you need to get a hundred, otherwise you're in deep trouble. If you read it as God saying, this is what I want the colony to look like, then it becomes a call, or a calling, or a vision. And we see ourselves as God sending us out into the world, and this is what our community is to look like. Christopher Wright, another person that I'm reading, puts it this way. Deuteronomy bends every rhetorical, literary, emotional, and moral skill to the task of equipping and motivating God's people to live for the purposes of God. And what are the purposes of God? That the world be blessed in each generation. Deuteronomy bends every rhetorical, literary, emotional, and moral skill to the task of equipping you and me. Back then it was Israel. Now it's you and me. And motivating us 
to live as God's people in the world in which he has placed us. And I find that just such, I've found it for 25 years, such a, such an empowering vision that God is sending me and sending us out into this world as a colony to live in such a way that we can begin to experience life as God intended it to be and invite others to join us in this colony to build the kind of life together this connection with Him, this connection with each other, this connection with His creation, this holistic picture, so that this world can start to take shape as God intended it to be. A couple other themes that we'll find in Deuteronomy. One is that of the widow, the orphan, and the alien. This will be a big theme in Deuteronomy that God will call Israel to care for those that are weak and marginalized. And from Deanna Thompson, uh, this quote, in order to just put this in front of you, we'll go to the quote. There should be a, yeah, there we go. Central to Israel's own identity is that of strangers in the land of Egypt. God is always saying, remember you were strangers and slaves in the land of Egypt. In the midst of the realities of living as strangers in a strange land, a key affirmation beckons our attention that Deuteronomy's God does not gaze impartially on those strangers. Rather, as theologian Daniel Berrigan claims, and those of you who are alive in the 60s remember Daniel Berrigan, this God plays favorites, those favored by no one. The concern expressed for the stranger is at heart of Torah, Therefore, the community of Israel is called to care for the stranger, widow, and orphan because God cares for them. This ongoing and dogged concern with the welfare of the stranger is a hallmark of Israel's history. At a time of national ferment over the alien, connoted by the term illegal aliens to reference immigrants in our own society, Deuteronomy's powerful vision of inclusion of those at the edges of society should give us pause. So we're going to pay special attention as we read Deuteronomy to God's concern for the marginalized. It's another big theme. And then just a couple other themes. I'm not going to spend time on them today, but just themes that we are going to have to pay attention to as we go through the book. One of those themes is just the laws of Deuteronomy. What do we do with those laws? Some of those laws are very specific. And some of those laws are laws that we simply would not obey today under any circumstances. For example, in 15.1, God says to Israel, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Now, those of you who have debts, of course, would like it if we held to that law here in our Western culture. But the chances of that, of course, are zero. That's just not something we do. It's not something that anybody spends any time about. It's not something the church preaches. It's not something the church says that we should do. We just don't do it. We just totally ignore that law. So what do we do with it? Another law which might strike closer to home for some of us, a rebellious, this is in 21, a rebellious son, 
and I'm assuming that would also be true for a daughter, although it may not have been. A rebellious son should be taken to the elders at the gate and stoned to death. That's a law in Deuteronomy. It's there in black and white. It's clear as a bell. There's no, there's no other way to interpret it. The words are clear. If you have a rebellious son, you take him to the elders. If the elders confirm that he's rebellious, then the next step is take him somewhere and stone him to death. I haven't seen that happen in my lifetime. I suspect you haven't either. I've never heard of it happening. It's just, it's just not a thing. So we're going to have to deal with some of these laws in Deuteronomy that, okay, God gave these laws, but how do we, what do we do with them? Another theme that we're going to have to deal with is this theme of God and violence. It's not quite as huge a theme in Deuteronomy as it is in other places in the Pentateuch. It's not quite as explicit or as um, cruelly laid out on the table, but there's no doubt and no question that at least Israel believed that God was calling them to go into the land of Canaan and totally wipe out, to put, as Deuteronomy says, under the ban, the Canaanites of the land. Men, soldiers, civilians, Women, children, animals, livestock, destroy the whole thing. We have to deal with that in some way. I'm not going to spend time on it now, but just as if you read through Deuteronomy yourself, just, just pay attention. That theme is there. And the other theme is that of what I'm calling the prosperity gospel. It showed up a little bit here in this video. This idea that God says to his people, look, if you obey me and do what I say, you're going to be blessed. You're going to live well. You're going to have the money you need. You're going to have the resources you need to live. Your life is going to be good. And if you don't do what I say, your life is going to be full of curse and trouble and, and problems and poverty, etc., etc. We would call that today the prosperity gospel. I'm not going to go into it today, but we are going to have to find a way to deal with that because I don't think any of us today in 2022 really believe that that's the way it works. I've titled this series, That You May Live, and I've done that because this theme of life comes through over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. And I just want to pick out a couple passages for you to note, perhaps jot them down and read them yourself at home. The first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, says Moses, listen to, this, or, or, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Why? That you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And you must remember, again, I've said this lots of times uh, over the last years, when the Bible talks about this living and this life, it's, it's talking about the total fullness and the total well-being of all aspects of our life, both as an individual and as part of a community and as part of his creation. It's this shalom, this well-being that just flows as a river throughout all of scriptures. Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them so that you may live. And then the next verse from 1620, justice and only justice shall you follow. 
that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the colony perspective. We do justice, horizontal. We take care of the marginalized. We're honest. We make sure that no one among us is without what he or she needs to live. We're just. We're, we're, we make sure that laws are applied regardless of person. And when we do that, we will live. That's this horizontal aspect. And then right at the end, it was referred to in the, in the video, Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, and here's the challenge, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. And this is an amazing uh, phrase, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. For he is your life. And then we just celebrated the birth of Jesus. And John says, Jesus came, the word became flesh, and in him was life. And this life, was the light of men. And John says later, but all of these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So all through Deuteronomy, we're going to be looking ahead in terms of the chronological and seeing what Jesus has to show us about, about how this life works, what it looks like to be a person whose God is your life, how that works, and what it means to be a follower of Christ and to walk with Him through life. Not so that you can get into the lifeboat and be saved and removed from this world which is going to go down like a Titanic because it isn't. It's because your life gains the deepest of all possible reasons to live it. When God calls us as individuals and as a community in this intersection of history that we have, and crisis that we're facing. To say, Lord, I want to go with you into this crisis. This crisis of today, this crisis of this week, this crisis of this month, this crisis of 2022, this crisis of whatever it is. I'm going to go with you into it, because only in you is life. And you've called me to really live in this world and in this place in which you've placed me.